Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden uh, from the University of Johannesburg Center for African Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon. And uh, I am so happy to be able to have on the show today someone who I've been following very closely for a number of different years over these past years on U.S.-China-Africa relations, but more importantly also on China-Africa relations as a whole. Ambassador David Shin is with us this afternoon. Uh, Good morning to you from Washington. Well, good morning, uh, Eric and Kobus. I'm pleased to be with you. Well, just to give a little background on Ambassador Shin, you may know him from uh, the fact that he has just published two books. Uh, one and uh, is called China, Africa, A Century of Engagement that he co-wrote with Joshua Eisenman. And I suspect that if you are an undergraduate student or even a master's candidate, you will be become very, very well acquainted with that text. And then more recently, he uh, has just recently published A Historical Dictionary of Ethiopia. Uh, Ambassador Shin is also the former... U.S. Ambassador to Ethiopia uh, and Burkina Faso, as well as on the adjunct faculty at uh, George Washington University in Washington, D.C. So thank you so much for joining us today. Ambassador Shin, what we do here on the show every week is we talk about three topics. This week is no exception. Uh, This week we're going to talk about U.S.-China-Africa relations, really to uh, highlight your presence on the show and to get the pulse of what Washington thinks of this relationship. And it's such a vital uh, part of of the dynamic in foreign policy. And then we're going to talk about uh, Arthur Mutambora, he is the, for, he's the, uh, the deputy prime minister of Zimbabwe, and he has a get-tough message with, uh, with China. We're going to kind of get the ambassador's take on that. And finally, we're going to hear from Michael Solomon, who is the executive director of J&J Group, uh, and he says there's a looming collision coming between China and Africa. We will get the ambassador and Kobus's take on that. So let's get started right away here on U.S.-China-Africa relations. Uh, I'm going to ask the first question, but we're going to take a slightly unusual format this time, in part because uh, in advance of the ambassador's presence on the show today, I went out onto our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project and mentioned that you were going to be with us. And I said, what would you want to ask the ambassador? And so we got a number of excellent questions from followers, both in Africa and the United States. To, so we'll present those to you. But first, I want to talk to you about the general awareness on Capitol Hill in Washington of the China-Africa dynamic and the China's engagement in Africa. Last year, you testified before a House committee, uh, and then this year, you testified before a Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Now, what was incredible to watch was the level of naivete and the provincialism and the, just the outright nationalism that we saw in the House uh, subcommittee uh, testimonial that you that you gave, but on the part of obviously the House members, and yet a far more nuanced and and really sophisticated perspective coming out of the Senate. And I wanted to see if you might be able to kind of give us an indication of which one of those do you think prevails more in Washington? Is it the naivete of the House or the more sophisticated view of the Senate? Well, quite frankly, the uh, the view that's coming out of the U.S. House of Representatives uh, is probably the one that prevails more widely around the United States, uh, as opposed to just Washington. Washington is is something of an exception in that you have an enormous amount of uh, of intellectual firepower uh, concentrated in the city, and you also do have a very different approach to international issues in the Senate as compared to the House of Representatives. The House of Representatives uh, members, by definition, represent limited districts in the United States with rather provincial interests for the most part. Senators, of course, represent entire states and sometimes uh, very large and important ones like 
California or New York. Uh, California has the 11th largest economy in the world. So you, you do have very different approaches between the two. And I think you do have to distinguish, though, whether you're talking about views in Washington or views uh, more generally around the United States. Okay, so let's uh, let's get your take before I let Cobus have his turn at this. How would you describe the perspective of around the United States and in Washington towards China in Africa? There will be a, a lot of um, concern, uh, particularly outside of Washington, but also in the House of Representatives, which represents the uh, rest of the United States, about what China is up to in Africa. There uh, tends to be a reasonable amount of what I would call China bashing uh, that goes on in the United States. It's certainly not universal, and, and there are members of the Senate and the House of Representatives who do not engage in that. But it's, it's sort of a, of a no-lose position to take uh, for a politician to be critical of China when you have concerns in your district, and if you can possibly blame someone else or something else, for it. Uh, China's a good candidate for that. So that probably is more predominant than a view of trying to understand and even cooperate with China. Kobus, before I go to our uh, our Facebook questions, I'm going to let you have the floor. So I was, um, Ambassador Shin, I was actually wondering, um, do, do you see a, a change with of focus within um, the U.S.-U.S. policy um, from aid towards trade, or do you, do you still see that that um, that the main focus uh, in U.S.-Africa relations tends to circle around around still around aid? Um, you know, kind of, I've seen. Uh, calls for the early um, early renewal of the African Growth and Opportunity Act, um, but also some some acknowledgments that the African Growth and Opportunity Act might not actually be working that well, or might not actually be you know really boosting trade to the extent that it could. Um, do you see that is 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 aid still really the way people think about Africa in in, in America, or is it is it shifting towards trade a little bit? Again, it, you probably have to make a distinction between what they're doing on Capitol Hill and what the American public is thinking. Uh, in all frankness, the American public is not that uh, concerned about issues in Africa, whether it be aid or trade. Uh, but if you look at Capitol Hill, where the decisions are made, and also the executive branch, uh, I don't see any real movement one way or the other in terms of priorities, aid versus trade. Uh, I, there's a lot of discussion about renewing the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act on the Capitol Hill among those who are involved in the process. I believe it will be renewed, but I think you're quite right. There also is disappointment uh, with that particular act in that the, um, the level of trade has not increased that much, and overwhelmingly, uh, U.S.-Africa trade is based on the import of oil uh, from Africa, and that's where the big numbers are, and that's going to happen with or without the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act. Uh, but the the trade element is certainly there. I think it's uh, becoming somewhat more important, uh, particularly as we enter a period of fiscal restraint in the United States with enormous pressures on, uh, at, at uh, best, uh, keeping aid levels uh, pretty much flat without much prospect for their increase. 
But, you know, this is what frustrates me about, you know, when, when the West and the United States in particular discuss the, the Chinese in Africa. Hillary Clinton goes to, goes to Africa and on, on, on several occasions warns about neocolonial behavior from the Chinese. And yet when you look at the data, as you pointed out, the vast majority of trade between China uh, – between the United States and Africa is oil. The vast majority of trade between China and Africa is oil. Yet the Chinese are exporting more into, into Africa than the, than the Americans are. The Chinese do not have military bases strung throughout Africa. Uh, now new status forces of agreements uh, with, uh, within West Africa are now permitting drone bases to be there. So in some ways, I feel like there's a double standard when we talk about the United States and, and China and Africa and how the two are behaving. And that the United States often gets a pass for some of its behavior and its trade activities. Well, on the trade issue, you're quite right. Uh, the the trade patterns are, are fairly similar. The big difference is that China exports far more to Africa than does the United States. And of course, China passed the United States in 2009 as being Africa's uh, largest trading partner. Whenever I refer to Africa, I'm referring to all 54 countries, including North Africa. The, uh, the pattern of U.S. trade with Africa is is similar in that we, too, largely import uh, raw materials, principally oil, uh, and that amount of oil that we're importing is actually on the decline now as a result of uh, domestic developments in the oil sector in the U.S., which is going to have a very interesting impact upon hmm. on U.S.-Africa trade relations in the coming years. Uh, on the military side, uh, you're, you're also quite correct. Uh, the United States does have uh, relatively significant military interests in Africa with one full-fledged uh, military base in Djibouti, and with several very small drone uh, operations for surveillance only in uh, the Seychelles, uh, Ethiopia, and now Niger. So why does the United States get a pass when it comes to, you know, almost scaremongering about China's engagement when in fact it's doing exactly the same thing, if not more aggressive? I think on the trade side, the difference is that because we are exporting so little to Africa that we're not really interrupting uh, African manufacturing patterns because our competition is just not that great. The U.S. is not exporting uh, textiles to uh, Africa, for example. So in that sense, it is a different situation. On, on the African export side, since uh, they're mainly exporting raw materials to both the U.S. and to China and other countries, uh, they're not really objecting to that part of the equation. They, they will obviously want to sell their raw materials. And if China and the U.S. are the biggest buyers, that's fine. But the, the difference is on the, um, the import side, and, and that's where the distinction is quite significant between China and the U.S. Okay, well, let's go to our Facebook questions now. Uh, this one comes from uh, Lu Jinghao, who's a regular contributor to our show and a follower on our Facebook page. And he said, how will the U.S. government respond to the increasing Chinese activities in Africa? Both EU and U.S. express their concerns about China's activities in Africa. So will they collaborate to counter China's growing influence? Do you foresee uh, EU and U.S. cooperation to box in the Chinese in Africa? I really don't, and, and there's actually been surprisingly little collaboration uh, between the European Union and the United States vis-a-vis uh, -vis China's activities in Africa. Both the European Union and the United States individually have their own dialogue with China on China-Africa issues. I would argue that the collaboration with the EU is more advanced than the one with the United States. 
but I, I don't see this as uh, necessarily resulting in a, a significant um, uh, competition between the United States and China in Africa. There's more of this is played up in the media than is in fact taking place within the U.S. government. You mentioned earlier the, the comments by former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton in which on one occasion in Zambia she did explicitly refer to uh, China as perhaps a neo-colonial um, uh, influence in Africa. Her subsequent reference in Senegal did not uh, mention China by name, mm -hmm. but certainly implied that uh, she was referring to China in that context. Uh, that, in my view, is not a particularly helpful approach to dealing with the issue, but it's also the exception uh, in that you have an, an enormous number of contacts going on in which the the American government and the Chinese government are, are actually trying to collaborate on certain specific kinds of issues like UN peacekeeping, uh, like dealing with anti-piracy in the Gulf of Aden, uh, and even some very early discussions about possible collaboration in the economic development sector, although they have not gone very far. So I, I see more of this as being driven by the media than actually being driven by um, uh, contact between our two governments. Uh, unfortunately, it's the the exceptional comments that get played up, and they're there, and you have to deal with them. Yeah. You know, Cobus, this is an issue you and I have talked about for a couple years now, is that this gap in perceptions is despite the, you know, the imbalances that the United States has with uh, with Africa on the trade front, it still continues to have very strong public opinion, uh, you know, approval ratings uh, throughout the continent. Uh, so it seems like it's, it, you know, as the ambassador said, it's it's the media, but it also seems to be in public opinion firmly entrenched that the United States is a positive force, whereas China may not be so positive. What's your take on that? Yeah, I, I wonder if if that might uh, one aspect of that might be that America mostly has uh, a symbolic presence um, in the sense that there aren't as many Americans actually on the ground, um, except for in, in certain cases aid workers and you know uh, people from the Peace Corps and so on. Um, in the case of China, obviously there's lots of Chinese people on African streets, um, and African people are, are you know are interacting with them. I think in, in the case of the US. Maybe it's a situation where the, the symbolic, you know, power of the U.S. and in particular U.S. pop culture is is allowed to operate on, you know, it's, it's nothing interferes with that with that power. So in a weird way, kind of Jay Z and Beyonce are kind of the, the representatives of America in Africa. Whereas in China, there is a, you know, when you when you speak about Chinese in Africa, there are many Chinese in Africa, and the interactions are on a real real world level, you know, kind of so, um, you know, in, in certain ways, the, the interactions might be more difficult and might, might generate more resentment. But on the other hand, it's also more just more real, you know, kind of, it's just more of a reality than, than America, which tends to, I think, frequently in the, from African eyes, tend to drift somewhere in the sky, you know, kind of, and that doesn't really touch down on the ground. I don't know if you guys agree. Ambassador Shin, what's your take on that? Now, I, I, I do agree with, with Kobus on that, and let me add a couple of points on public opinion polling. You're quite right. Uh, the United States scores higher in Africa, or Americans score higher in Africa on likability than any other part of the world, at least in sub-Saharan Africa. Let me be very precise here, because when you do similar polling, and Gallup and the Pew Institute have done polling throughout the continent, but when you do it in North Africa, it becomes very important how you phrase the question. 
If the question is more focused on U.S. policy around the world, the rankings are very, very low for the United States. Uh, North Africans really don't much like U.S. policy. But if you ask sub-Saharan Africans their view on Americans or their view even on U.S. policy, the rankings are very high. But they're the same for Chinese uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. They also get quite high uh, rankings. But I think Kobus's points are absolutely right in terms of some of the, um, the reasons for this. There are clearly far fewer Americans on the ground in Africa than there are Chinese today. Uh, the numbers being used for China are somewhere between one and two million. Uh, I don't know what the number for the for Americans would be, but it would be much, much below that. The uh, the other uh, issue uh, concerning Americans and Chinese is the pop culture issue. I mean, let's face it, uh, Chinese pop culture just hasn't cut it in Africa. Uh, who in Africa is interested in Chinese opera? Uh, they may be interested in Chinese acrobats, and if, if China eventually develops a, a superpower football team, there'll be a lot of interest. But in the meantime, it's, um, it's Western, it's European soccer, European football, uh, it's American rap, um, American hip-hop, American movies, television. Not that all of these are good influences. They're not, in my view, but that's what's popular, and, and I think that uh, rubs off on a lot of the opinion polling. Yeah, but, you know, Cobus recently edited an academic journal on media, and, and one of the articles said that, you know, highlighted something very, very interesting in that there are very different perceptions as to what soft power is. So we in the West kind of define soft power, and Joseph Nye himself defined it through culture, uh, you know, Jay-Z, as you said, and, you know, and, and all of the music and, and even a, a politics and the civic side of government. And, you know, economics was always defined as hard power, not as soft power. But yet, African coverage, particularly in Zambia, where, you know, this particular study was done, uh, really treated Chinese, Chinese stories about China's economy as a soft power story. And as a feature story and as an inspiring story, one that Africans could model and emulate. So I wonder if in some ways we're asking the wrong questions, that we are filtering the public opinion polls through a Western prism, but yet we're, the Africans are looking at this in a much more nuanced, sophisticated way where they're taking from China what they want and they're taking from America what they want. What's your take on that? Well, I think that's probably true. Uh and I think that's true of all cultures. You you do borrow from others what you want or what what fits your own parameters, uh, and it's not as though people can force something upon you. Uh, I don't know the degree to which the um, the African audience is being nuanced about this. You'd have to get inside the heads, I guess, of of those people who are being asked the question. But I think you're quite right. We do have to be very careful about what people think when they hear the term soft power, uh, I, I'm not sure what the appropriate definition of it is today. I think it has become a rather different concept today than it was when uh, Joseph Nye talked about it uh, a couple decades ago. Kobus, tell us a little bit about the findings of that article in your recent journal. Yes, the, the article found that, um, that in the first place, the coverage of economic issues um, in the African press far outweighed the coverage of anything else, including issues, for example, like uh, human rights problems within China. Um, so just the weight of coverage of new business deals and, and business expansion far outweighed any, any kind of other, other reporting. And in the second place, it 
crucially informed the, the how positively Africans saw uh, saw the saw China um, to the extent that it, it basically crowded out any of the of the cultural diplomacy efforts put on by the Chinese government um, and you know kind of there was just this, this very distinct feeling that Africans just aren't particularly interested for example in in attending Confucius institutes or you know all of all of the other kind of organs of, of, of state of, of cultures um, that, that the Chinese state has put up whereas there's a, this unending fascination with, with an expansion of business. Uh, let's end. Uh, let's end. Get wrap up this segment here with a question. Another another question from Facebook, who's uh, from Winslow Robertson, who some of you may know on the show. He's very active on both Twitter and our Facebook page. He's out of Washington D.C. and uh, he and I have a, a friendly, ongoing debate. Winslow is uh, is is very very you know optimistic about the United States' role in Africa. I, as you know, as longtime listeners will know, I am not uh, as as optimistic as Winslow. So we have this debate. But Winslow uh, wants to ask the ambassador, what was the most surprising thing uh, that you learned about Sino-African relations in the course of doing research on your book, uh, China and Africa, A Century of Engagement. Uh, and he said, I was really impressed that he talked about the diplomacy of the Republic of China, which I did not even know about. Now, those uh, re- who are not familiar, the Republic of China is different than the People's Republic of China. The Republic of China, of course, refers to Taiwan, which split from China in the 1949 uh, war with China, civil war. So uh, what was the most surprising thing that you found about Sino-African relations during the course of research for your book? Goodness, there are any number of answers I could give to that. Uh, One of the things, though, would be the degree to which there have been uh, Chinese communities uh, active in various parts of Africa going back uh, well over a century, uh, particularly in the Indian Ocean, the African Indian Ocean Island nations, uh, Madagascar, uh, Mauritius, uh, but also especially in South Africa. And I, I must confess, I was not aware of the long-standing um, Chinese community there that goes back to the, the late um, 1800s and, and going into the mining fields. But there even were, were small communities that uh, moved into Mozambique, and there was a, an aborted effort to send Chinese uh, laborers, railway workers into the Congo and into gold mining in Ghana. Uh, most of those communities have long since disappeared, but some of them have not, uh, particularly the uh, the communities in South Africa and the Western Indian Ocean Islands. So that was a, an historical surprise. Um, the the other overall surprise, and perhaps it shouldn't have been a surprise, is just the the overwhelming magnitude of uh, China's engagement across all elements of activity in Africa since the late 1990s. Uh, we all sort of knew about it, and we knew a lot was going on, but it's only when we spent, after we spent seven years researching it, that we understood the the totality of it, and it, it's quite overwhelming. I haven't. I've bought the book. I have not, unfortunately, read it. It's my summer reading. Uh, but uh, if I could just skip to the conclusion, uh, the last uh, the last chapter of the book. Where do you see this going? I mean, you said one to two million Chinese now live in Africa. The vast majority of those have made their way independently. Uh, the engagement now transcends almost all fifty four countries. Uh, it's the largest trading partner for for the continent. Where does this go? What's your What's your conclusion in the book? Uh, our conclusion is that this is um, is a permanent feature of international relations. In other words, uh, China is going to maintain a significant interest in um, in Africa, 
there probably will be uh, periods in the time ahead when it will level off or you won't see any significant uptick. But I don't think you're going to see any decreases in the, the overall level of engagement. So long as uh, China has a, a very strong industrial economy, it's going to need uh, natural resources uh, coming from around the world. Uh, Africa is one of the predominant suppliers of raw materials and will continue to be so as far as one can see into the future. Uh, so it's going to be a source for China. Uh, on the other hand, China is going to have to figure out, and we may come to this a little bit later, uh, how to uh, deal with African concerns uh, about uh, becoming an industrial uh, power themselves. And this is a real issue, I think, for China. Uh, but I, I do see this as very much of a, of a permanent, long-term, and important relationship that's not going to go away. It's also going to become increasingly difficult for China to manage this relationship. Uh, they've had it pretty easy so far. And I think this is going to change and it's going to require far more diplomacy on their part and a much greater effort to accommodate African concerns. Well, Cobus, that is a perfect segue into our second topic, in part because uh, last week at the uh, at a China-Africa Business uh, Summit in, in Johannesburg, sponsored by Frontier Advisory, uh, there was uh, some comments from the Zimbabwe Deputy Prime Minister, Arthur Mutambara, which highlights what the ambassador is saying about the difficulty that China may encounter in the future. Instead of dealing with Ch Africa as a continent, it may have to now start dealing with them country by country in a far more nuanced way. Tell us a little bit about what Deputy Prime Minister uh, Mutambara said and what his tough talk was for China. It was The talk was interesting because it was tough in all directions. In, in the first place, he, he was pretty tough about China in the sense that he, he, he said um, that, China, that Africans should stop thinking about China as a comrade country and, and as a code, you know, as a fellow developing country. And that, you know, that, uh, which is, of course, the way that the Chinese government tends to portray itself as, as, as a development country. Um, and so I think in certain cases they're right. Um, but he also then said that Africans should stop blaming colonialism apartheid and so on for its for their problems and that they, they should be much more proactive in negotiating with China but also much more proactive in, in just solving their own problems. Let me read the quotes here and then we can get the ambassador's take on it. He says, uh, Deputy Prime Minister Mutambara says, why are we not making sure the engagement with China is on our terms as Africans? Labor, skills, technology, value addition. The Chinese must come to Africa on African terms. The terms that will allow the Chinese to make money, but the terms that will also allow Africa to develop. Win-win. China wins. Africa wins. So, Ambassador Shin, this is this is now becoming uh, uh, what seems to be a theme now in some, at least in some quarters of Africa's political elites. It started several years ago with Michael Sada when he was an opposition politician in Zambia before he won the presidency. He has softened considerably now, uh, but he, you know, famously called Zambia, you know, China's newest province or something to that effect. Then we heard it from uh, Sanusi Lumido out of the out of Nigeria, who's the Nigerian Central Bank governor, who made very similar comments saying that China is basically not a developing country. It's not adding value to the products. It's basically behaving like the former colonial powers did. And now we're hearing it from in, in Zimbabwe from the deputy prime minister. Is this a trend or are these three isolated instances in your opinion? They're not isolated uh, 
incidences, in my opinion. Uh, it's perhaps premature to say that they are a trend. I, I, was, I was actually even more struck by the comments of the Nigerian central bank governor, uh, Lamido Sanusi. Uh, his, uh, his remarks were at least <clears throat> as outspoken, uh, if not more so than the official from Zimbabwe. The, um, the Chinese certainly need to pay attention to these kinds of remarks because they're not coming from the former U.S. Secretary of State. Uh, that's a, a totally different uh, uh, issue for China, but they're coming from very prominent and well-respected Africans. Uh, and there have been other comments, too. Uh, you even had President uh, Thabo Mbeki, uh, when he was president, making some comments that raised issues about um, uh, China's involvement in trade practices in Africa. So the the handwriting is on the wall, and I must say China's pretty good about picking up on these kinds of issues and trying to deal with them. So I, I do think that they are paying attention and that they will make efforts to uh, to cope with the challenge. But the challenge is enormous, and I, I think there, that it will be a growing challenge. I think that additional African leaders will will make similar statements and they have uh, they already have those concerns particularly those african countries that have enormous trade deficits with china which is far more african countries than have large trade surpluses and those are mainly the oil and the mineral exporting countries and as these deficits build up year after year after year um, the governments are getting increasingly concerned that this trade relationship is simply not sustainable so I, I see this as a, a, a real um, flag flying for, for China to deal with, and uh, they're going to have to take it seriously. You know, Cobus, a couple things come to mind from, from the ambassador's comments here, and these are, again, themes that you and I have talked about on the show over a number of months. One is, uh, you know, is the lack of, of regulatory enforcement on the African side, so that the, you know, Mutambara may be saying that China must come to Africa in a, in a very strong way, but as we've seen on the wildlife front, as we've seen on counterfeit products, the, the African side itself is not equipped on a policy uh, framework, at least in a regulatory framework, to deal with the Chinese. There's an imbalance there. So how do we actually square that? I think this is a massive problem. Um, Mutambara was calling for greater regional negotiation in Africa, that, that, um, that you know, individual African countries shouldn't be the, the main way to negotiate, but that African regional blocks should negotiate as integrated blocks with China. But I think that's actually really difficult, among other reasons, because, because African uh, regional blocks and African governments are sending very mixed signals. I think if you look at it from, from a Chinese perspective, um, you know, kind of, there isn't really a clear cut, you know, kind of way of approach to Africa, rather that, you know, kind of, except for dealing with, with individual governments on a bilateral basis. Um, and if you look at, at, at the case in Zimbabwe itself, you know, as Mutambara was, was talking about how, you know, kind of South Africa and, and Zimbabwe, for example, should, should be more integrated and how South Africa should use its BRICS membership to, to also funnel uh, investments towards Zimbabwe, 
the Zimbabwean government is in a massive fight with a big South African sugar company to, uh, you know, kind of because there is a law in Zimbabwe that, uh, that any foreign company must be 51% owned by Zimbabweans, which is obviously not particularly attractive for, to, to, to pull foreign investment. Um, so, um, Ambassador Shin, I actually wanted to ask you, do, do you think that it's, it's going to be possible in the short term or medium term for African governments to really negotiate as blocks? Or is the, the government on government bilateral way of negotiating the only way that's really open to them? Unfortunately, I think for the time being, it's going to continue to be a question of bilateral negotiations with China, uh, which weakens enormously uh, the bargaining power of the African side, just because the largest country in Africa, Nigeria, at 165 million and a, a GDP that's just infinitely lower than China's is, is not in a very strong position, and not to not to mention a country like Benin or Togo, um, they just don't have the same kind of ability to negotiate. Eventually, I think there has to be more of a concerted effort coming out of the African Union uh, to at least establish some guidelines. And there, there, there's a possibility of having some real clout vis-à-vis uh, -vis China. But so far, that ability has not yet come up. Interestingly, back in 2007, there was a fascinating study by uh, mainly African academics that were um, uh, organized by the African Union to suggest ways that uh, the African countries could, could more effectively negotiate with China. That study appeared on the website for a year or so and now seems to have disappeared, but it made an awful lot of the, um, the um, raised a lot of the questions that we're now talking about and raise some of the concerns that we're now talking about back in 2007. It was a very prescient study. But, you know, it seems tough to believe that the African Union will be the source uh, of firmness with the, with the relationship with China. I mean, after all, China built the African Union headquarters. Uh, I think the first major overseas visit of the new AU chief was to Beijing, where she, you know, if she didn't kowtow, she, you know, she that may be too strong for it. But she was very, very praiseworthy of, of Beijing. Um, and this does not seem like the, the venue that, that will get tough. Uh, it seems like African governments have been in, have intentionally weakened the AU over over the years in order to maintain stronger bilateral relationships. So, I, I'm very skeptical of this pan-African dream, even regional dream, uh, that many African leaders talk about. But in reality, is very hard to implement. And China has done a very good job potentially of undermining that uh, by establishing such uh, uh, becoming a benefactor of the AU itself. Well, your point's well taken, and I must confess, I. I'm not particularly optimistic that the OA, uh, that the African Union is going to be in a position to, uh, to speak, uh, strongly on behalf of, um, of African interests. Uh, it may be more wishful thinking than anything else, but it, it is the one organization, even more so than SADAC or ECOWAS or EGAD, that I think has the potential for putting together the expertise and, um, politically coming up with a position that would be meaningful to China, but it may be too late. Uh, it may, in effect, have been co-opted. Uh, you know, this, uh, Cobus, this, this also requires a certain, you know, adjustment in Chinese diplomacy. 
Uh, and I guess for me, I, I, the part that I'm frustrated about when it comes to the Chinese is there's a certain sense of hypocrisy because the Chinese have insisted from the day that it opened its doors to foreign trade that there must be technology transfer, there must be training, there must be, you know, the, the foreign companies must meet regulatory environments that are strictly held. And now when China's going out to the rest of the developing world, it's not adhering to, to that at all. And it seems to be really taking advantage of a lot of the situations in Africa with weak, weak regulatory environments. So, I mean, I, I just get frustrated when I see that the, the, this going on. Yeah, I share your frustration. I think I think there could there could be a lot more done in terms of technology and skills transfer. Um, and I completely share the the frustration of the African governments. Um, you know, because they they sit with large amounts of unemployed people, um, and it, it is very frustrating. You know, for for them to to not have you know, not, not be in a position where they can really impose these skills transfer rules. Um, what I'm just kind of wondering is how they're really supposed to do it, you know, um, because obviously any kind of skills transfer has to happen on a foundation of basic skills. And I think in, in, in many cases, um, and I think particularly in South Africa, that that's very true, is that the um, education system in South Africa is so disrupted that it's actually difficult to, to, to set up a basic foundation of skills um, to to, you know, in order to be able to make use of new skills, even if those skills are offered, which in the case of China, they're not really. Well, Ambassador Shin, let me let me pick up on, on a little bit of, uh, of what Kobus is saying on how can this actually happen if there is to be a more equitable relationship. And I want to bring up a point by Howard French, who is the former New York Times journalist and who's now at Columbia University. And he thinks and writes and tweets quite a bit on, uh, on Sino-African relations. And one point that he made in, in, a, in a briefing at the Hong Kong Foreign Correspondents Club last year was that the, the, the Chinese ability to actually control most of the Chinese activities in Africa uh, is now beyond its scope. That is, the over, since the overwhelming number of people, of Chinese people in Africa, are independent entrepreneurs, migrants, if you will, um, these people stand outside of the scope of government policy. They stand outside the, the reach of the Chinese government or the ability to control them. So I guess a different question might be asked is when people say the word Chinese, that's a that's an increasingly useless description of what's become a very very diverse population. Uh, Howard French is, is absolutely correct as far as he goes, uh, and I think what the the point that he is making is increasingly becoming a uh, a larger problem, in that the the impact of the Chinese the Chinese community in Africa is more and more coming from the Chinese private sector and from individual entrepreneurs, traders, etc., who are moving to Africa, engaging with Africa on their own, uh, below the radar of the government, which does make it very difficult for um, the governments to, to monitor. When we did research in Africa in 2007, visiting um, seven different countries, we would always go to the Chinese embassy, and one of our first questions was, how many Chinese are there in the country where we happen to be interviewing? And inevitably, the, the estimate that we would get from the Chinese embassy was the lowest estimate of all of those that we would obtain on that particular visit. We would ask that question of dozens of people. And I think they, they honestly didn't know, and they weren't trying to deceive us, but they were simply going on the basis of the registered numbers of Chinese at the embassy, which was way below the actual number. So they, they simply didn't have a very good handle on it. 
and this is a problem for them. On the other hand, in terms of, of dollar involvement on the continent, that still is heavily in the hands of the large state-owned enterprises, the large loans from the Chinese Export-Import Bank, uh, the state-owned construction companies and oil companies that are doing the really big business. Uh, these are the companies that control by far most of the money, Chinese money, going into Africa. And in theory, they should be in a position to do more if they are so inclined uh, to transfer technology, to encourage uh, industrial development in Africa. So I, I wouldn't let the Chinese off the hook entirely on this point. Okay, well, that'll be a, another topic of discussion that we are continuing on our Facebook page, and we hope that you'll continue to join us. We're at facebook.com slash China Africa Project, and we're going to go back to Facebook now uh, for a question. We're going to move on to our third topic now uh, for, that came from Okumu Onjumi Charles, who I, I hope I said your name correctly. Please forgive me if I didn't. And it said, what is Shin's take on Michael Solomon's understanding that there's an imminent collision between China and Africa? So let me set this up here very quickly. Uh, Michael Solomon is the executive director of J&J Group, a mining group, and recently at the Frontier Advisory China-Africa Business Summit, he said that there is an imminent collision coming. Let's take a listen. Tensions between Chinese interests and African interests is what I see as a looming head-on collision between the Chinese imperative, and I think justified imperative, to control the investments in which they make large, uh, they, they commit large sums of money, and the need by African countries to derive more benefit from their minerals industry. This head-on collision, I think, is going between, uh, it's at an economic front, as, as the Chinese investors would like to get their, their product as cost-effectively as possible, and Africans would like to derive as much added value from their projects as possible, and as much of their own investment so when it's talking about beneficiation in terms of adding value on the one side and participation in terms of the fundamental participation of their own people and making sure that that money goes back into the economy both in terms of primary investment and all importantly in terms of, of, of secondary and tertiary development. So that tension is not simple. It goes into different dimensions. Okay, Ambassador Shin, so there's uh, Michael Solomon talking about the fact that uh, the China wants to have more control of its investments and Africa wants to derive more benefit from its relationship with China. Do you agree with Michael Solomon that, uh, that there is an imminent collision, that these two uh, tracks cannot, uh, cannot avoid but colliding? Well, I certainly agree that there uh, is going to be much more tension between China and Africa on the way in which China both trades and invests on the continent. And I would go back to some of the things we've already mentioned, the need for technology transfer, helping to build uh, the industrial base of Africa and reducing these, some of these enormous trade deficits with individual countries. That, that is a, an area of real concern. I'm not sure I would uh, call it a, a collision, an imminent collision. I think that language is perhaps too strong. But it, it is an area that China must be very observant of and do more to try to rectify than it has so far. Uh, as far as the U.S. Uh, role in all of this, I, I do not see any particular collision involving the U.S. and China in Africa. We have different, somewhat different approaches uh, to dealing with the continent. 
and we certainly compete on things like uh, contracts for construction projects and on trade and even on a few investment proposals. But the United States does that with European countries and everyone else. Uh, so that competition will continue, but it's totally normal. I think there are other areas where the U.S. and China can actually cooperate in Africa. Kobus, what was your take on it? Do you see a collision coming? I definitely see more tension coming. Um, I think there's a lot of frustration in Africa, particularly in the case of mining, um, because they do see a lot of raw materials being exported as such. And there's been, you know, for a long time, there's been a lot of pressure in Africa, in African society, to uh, to try and, and you know, as, as they call it in South Africa, to beneficiate minerals. So, you know, to, to, to build, uh, for example, um, refining and metal producing and pipe and so on, you know, all kinds of metal products producing, for example, in the case of of South Africa, rather than exporting iron ore as is. Um, In South Africa, there's been a a populist movement within the ruling party for nationalization of the mines, which the party has been very careful to try and they're trying to, to, you know, stamp out that particular fire, but it it keeps popping up every now and then, because there is this this, um, perception that the, the the country can get much more out of its minerals than it is getting at the moment. The real problem is how they're supposed to do it, particularly because obviously setting up uh, the, you know there have been there have been attempts to set up these kind of beneficiation projects in different African countries that haven't worked very well among other reasons because it's incredibly expensive to set up and they don't necessarily lead to a, a little economy you know they, they don't necessarily lead to economic development they sometimes become these enclaves um, that's that's the real problem is how to actually make it happen I think all African leaders are you know they, they agree that they want to make it happen they just don't know how yeah but Cobb and, and let me direct this question to, to Ambassador Shin. That seems to me a little bit of a garbage argument, not, not what you're saying. I agree with what you're saying, that people are saying that. But at the end of the day, the Chinese are behaving, in, you know, they're not stealing the, the minerals. They're actually paying money. Joseph Kabila is making the decision about whether he's going to put hundreds of millions of dollars into his pocket or he's going to invest it in the schools. The Nigerian government is going to take that money and put it into their pockets or put it into the environment to protect uh, northern Nigeria. So at the end of the day, corruption seems to be a far more, uh, you know, a far bigger problem. And that starts at home. So Ambassador Shin, shouldn't African frustration be directed at their own leaders and maybe not at the Chinese? Well, it certainly should be directed at their own leaders, and it's not just a question of, of corruption. That's part of the problem, but it's also uh, a question of African policies. Uh, they, they simply need to be tougher in some cases, and not just vis-a-vis China, but uh, vis-a-vis all international actors in, in the African countries. So, yes, uh, the in the first instance, the uh, the African countries and the leaders have to take responsibility for these decisions and have to put uh, more pressure on their um, interlocutors and, and make uh, better arguments and, and demand more. Uh, then it's up to countries like China, the United States, and the European countries to either accept that or um, or not. And that's a choice they have to make. You know, Cobus, it's... I, I wonder if I could jump in here. Go Sorry. ahead. Um, you know, I think, I think what, what worries me a little bit is I, I, I completely agree. Um, I'm just wondering that through which mechanisms the, 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 this kind of new toughness should, should emerge. For example, um, uh, Roman Kreinberg, oh, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He's, a, he's an academic at the Botswana Institute on Policy Analysis. He recently published an article on, on this issue, and he was looking at some of the different mechanisms, and one that he was, he was looking at is uh, 
uh, an approach that that was pursued by the Indonesian government, where they they started heavily taxing raw minerals leaving the country, and whereas you know um, to, in order to to get people to to refine minerals within Indonesia, but that then re- the, uh, caught a lot of uh, resistance from from the International Monetary Fund, um, and and it does tend to it does tend to then contravene international free trade agreements. So I'm not exactly sure how specifically the African governments should get tough. Yeah, but, you know, my take on this is that there's no constituency in Africa to defend the Chinese. And I'm not saying this in defense of the Chinese. I'm saying that it makes for very cheap politics, whether it's South African trade unions who are doing it more, whether it's Michael Sada, that to bash the Chinese is easy because you're really not going to get a, a vocal defense. Uh, and it makes for very, very good politics. I, you know, we go back to the BBC uh, China-Africa debate that we heard uh, last year, Cobus, where, you know, so much of the responsibility should fall on the shoulders of African governments and African policymakers and African leaders. And, and, and also to be careful of how much the Chinese themselves are corrupting these people. You know, how many of these, yeah, no. how many of these yeah, kids yeah. Are, are studying in Beijing on full scholarships and, and getting, you know, you know, first class fight, you know, flights back and forth to Africa. I mean, that that's also part of the problem. Yeah, no, I mean, that's completely true. Um, my, my concern is rather than, you know, kind of these, obviously these, these countries are competing against other very similar countries in a very crowded marketplace. So if you're X country and you happen to have iron ore, then you have a limit on how tough you can be because it's, it's not... You're not the only country on earth that has iron ore. You know, kind of. So you're competing against other countries with with perhaps more lax or more more you know kind of more friendly relations with China and with with the other big powers in in the international marketplace. Very few countries are in a position like Saudi Arabia or maybe Zambia in terms of copper, where they can really impose something. You know, kind of. Most of the time, it's happening within a negotiation process, um, and I think there are limits for particularly smaller African countries, even if they have natural resources, you know, where they can really impose, you know, saying that you have to, for example, refine this X mineral within our country or, you know, take a hike. I think very few African countries are really in that position. So, Ambassador Shin, with that in mind, the idea that, you know, that this, you, you talked about this, about this in the beginning of the show, the discrepancy between the size of the Chinese economy and a, a individual uh, African economy, be it Togolese, Burkina Faso, you know, these smaller economies in particular, they have no negotiating power, no leverage. And then on top of that, you've got transparency problems. And on top of that, you've got corruption. So it really doesn't bode well for, for the future of this relationship on that front. No, but I, I would go back to the idea of at least the African Union can set some, some overall general standards uh, that it may be able to get agreement on from the vast majority of the African countries. In the final analysis, it is going to go back to the ability of each individual country negotiating with China. Now, a country like South Africa or Nigeria probably has enough clout to do that, and indeed South Africa did it on one occasion, and and uh, asking China to stop uh, textile exports to to South Africa. It didn't solve the problem, but at least they got China to agree on it. Another thing that I think the African countries need to build up their expertise on is the ability to take a case before the World Trade Organization. To the best of my knowledge, uh, no African country has done that, and in part because they, they just are not yet in a position to to make a case before the WTO. But once you get some cases before the WTO against uh, China or any other country, uh, that's going to, to have an impact. 
Yeah, but also that's a very risky move. The Chinese have long memories, and they don't like that. Um, you know, they've been very tough in the WTO uh, against the Americans and against much larger powers. So if I was a small African country and I saw how the Chinese, you know, behave vindictively oftentimes in the WTO, uh, that would be a very big risk to take, it seems like. Well, fair point. Uh, but does it's one thing for China to do that vis-a-vis the United States or the European <laughs> Union. Uh, do they really want to have that kind of a reputation uh, vis-a-vis uh, Nigeria it's or a good Ghana? Point. It's a very good point. Uh, listen, let's. I've got two more questions for you uh, before we go. And again, I want to go back to our Facebook fans who, who so kindly uh, posted questions for you. And this time we're going to go to your old neighborhood in Addis Ababa. Uh, Addis Alemayu, and I apologize again if I did not pronounce your name correctly. He asked uh, a really fascinating question. And this is, again, we're, we're drifting away from our original three topics now. Uh, he said, what will be China's role in shaping Africa's moral and ethical boundaries uh, as China is currently spearheading the trafficking of horns in endangered species, illegal mining, production of substandard products. What kind of stance will the Central Committee in Beijing take? A fascinating question. What's your thoughts on that? I, I know Addis Alamayu and my regards to him. Uh, that's, it is a fascinating question and it's one that I I think the United States uh, government is very concerned about because it, it enters into the area of greatest uh, difference between U.S. policy towards Africa and Chinese policy towards Africa, going back to the, uh, the no-strings-attached uh, approach of China and on the side of the United States, the desire to um, try to encourage good governance, uh, reducing corruption, improved human rights practices, etc., which is the ethical side of what uh, Adas Alamayu is talking about. Uh, I'm not going to suggest on this program that the United States policy is consistent or that it's uh, always uh, correct on this point because there are too many inconsistencies. But it, it nevertheless is the, the one area of greatest disagreement between China and the U.S. in Africa, in my view. Uh, I, I think that um, it will be very interesting to see how devel- internal developments in China impact its approach towards Africa. And in, unless there are changes internally in China, uh, I, I don't think there's going to be any change at all in the way they approach um, their policies in Africa, with the possible exception, and, and even this can be linked back to their internal politics, is their approach towards corruption. Maybe there will be a tendency to try to dampen down uh, the role of corruption as they interact outside of China because it has become an issue in China. But all of this goes back to internal Chinese policies first, and it's going to be an area of great tension uh, between the United States and China in the years to come, and the European Union uh, for that matter too. Uh, Kobus, uh, you know, wrapping up now, it, it seems like listening to Ambassador Shin's comments is that we're, we're, we're destined for two things what I'm hearing here. One is that this is, this is a permanent part and a permanent fixture of Africa, uh, but also this is a lot of tensions ahead uh, on, on the horizon for all sides, Africa, Europe, China, uh, and then intra-Africa. What, uh, take, give us your thoughts on what, what you've heard today from the Ambassador. Yeah, I, th- I completely agree. I think I think it's going to be even more complicated than that because Africa is increasingly becoming an arena for lots of different investment from emerging powers as well. So you're seeing a lot of investment from Turkey, from in, from Malaysia, um, from South Korea, and all of them are 
increasingly in competition with each other. They all um, are, are in negotiation with African governments and local communities. Um, and they're stepping into situations where relationships between African governments and their local communities are incredibly complicated. So you frequently find, like, I think you, you saw that um, in Tanzania around um, around pipelines being built by Chinese companies there, where the, the uh, central government is pulling in one direction very much towards cooperation with China and the local the local community was protesting against the very pipeline because they were worried that they were going to be get cut out of uh, of development deals um, by their own government so I think the the situation is just going to become more and more and more complicated um, and it's well you know kind of we we hope to be you know spectators there and uh, but I, I have concerns about how how smoothly it's going to go yeah. they're, they're going to have to develop new ways of dealing with these issues I think. we always try and leave on a positive note but I don't think we're going to do that today because it seems like this is a very <laughs> tense note here you know so uh, Ambassador Shin thank you so much for joining us today you know uh, most of our listeners are either academics or diplomats or students themselves. And so uh, what we wanted, and many of them follow us on Twitter, which you can, uh, we'll we'll give our Twitter names, but they also follow us on Facebook and uh, on our mobile apps. And uh, I just, at the end of the show, what I do is try to give a little plug. And I'm hoping that maybe with your students at George Washington, you'll, you'll, you'll make this required listening or required reading as, uh, Mm -hmm. as, as more and more people have done, or better yet, actually, the next time you appear before Congress, either the Senate or the House. Maybe you can recommend them to listen to our show. <laughs> but uh, have to do so. I think that might help them quite a bit, actually. Cobus, uh, if people want to follow you on Twitter, what's the best way they can find you? Um, I'm on Twitter at Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And I'm also very active on our Facebook page. So our, I tend to update. I try to update every day. Uh, our Facebook page is facebook.com slash China Africa Project. As you saw today, a lot of the questions for Ambassador Shin came from our Facebook community. So it's a really amazing community. 56,000 people. The vast majority are, are young people, 18 to 30. Uh, and there's a great conversation going on. So we'd love for you to join it. Ambassador Shin, we'd love for you to pipe in every once in a while on the on the page over there and uh, and share with us uh, some of your thoughts on some of the issues of the day. Uh, if you want to follow me, I'm over at uh, on Twitter. I'm at e o lander e o l a n d e r. I'm tweeting almost every day the top stories in China Africa relations. Uh, and and for a, a former diplomat, an author, and an academic who none of those three categories are well known for their social media skills, uh, I got to admit, Ambassador Shin, you you're pretty good at this. Uh, so you've got a blog, you've got Twitter. Tell us a little bit about how people want to follow what you're thinking and reading and writing, what they should do to follow you. Well, the simplest way is, is just to follow the blog. And one way to reach it is just uh, type my name into Google. And normally it's the first thing to pop up. Um, but I, I do add um, material almost every day. And a lot of it's not my material. I draw on research that has been done by others that I think is worth uh, reading. And it covers either China, Africa, or the Horn of Africa, or occasionally more general African uh, issues, particularly U.S. policy in Africa. Excellent. And that's uh, that's Shin with two N's, S-H-I-N-N. So if you're going to use Google to find the Ambassador's blog, that's the way to do it. Uh, you can find this podcast on, uh, we're on SoundCloud. We're on the BlackBerry Network, which is particularly important in both in Indonesia and in South Africa, and as well as you can find us on iTunes. And we hope that you'll leave us a little comment there. We'd love to have your feedback. Uh, we're back every Sunday with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Until next week, have a wonderful week, and thank you so much for listening. Thank you.